and welcome to the second season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each week I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is James Ballard. James is a composer, lyricist, writer, and orchestrator whose work includes the musicals The Oxford Epidemic and The Jerk Next Door, as well as the one-act operetta Adore, the heavy metal oratorio The Darkest Day, and the song cycle Worlds to Explore. He holds an MFA from NYU's Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program and is the Artistic Director of the Curtain Up Songwriting Workshop at the University of Lynchburg. We're going to talk today about orchestration and creating a sound world in musical theater. Hey, James. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, We are going to get started with our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? The first experience with a musical that I can specifically remember was actually when I was about maybe four or five years old, uh, we got the cast album, the original Broadway cast album of Phantom of the Opera on cassette tape. And in those days it would have been, it was at least two cassettes and I wanna say it was maybe three or four, a lot of music over cassette tapes. Cause you know, yeah, early I, 1990s, that's how you were gonna listen. I remember uh, those days. <laughs> you listen to music and uh, my family, um, I, most of my childhood, I lived in uh, central Virginia, not really close to D.C. or Richmond or any big metropolitan areas. So, you know, I didn't grow up seeing Broadway shows or going to touring companies or things like that. But, you know, we um, we saw the Disney Renaissance films and things like that. Um, but every summer we would take a road trip out to visit my extended family in uh, Texas and New Mexico. My parents are both from Texas. So we would have you know, two to three full days in the car, and what do you do? We'd listen to (laughs) the tapes. And I remember being fascinated by Phantom of the Opera in particular because, as I said before, we had tapes of the the Disney movies, the soundtracks of, like, whatever movie was coming out that summer, whether it was The Lion King or Pocahontas. And, you know, for a a 90-minute Disney movie on your cassette tape, you'd get maybe 30 minutes of music, maybe not even that much. But I remember thinking it was so interesting that with Phantom of the Opera, you could just listen to the tape and you would hear the whole story. And I thought, oh, that's cool that, you know, you get the songs, but you're actually getting, you know, I don't think the entire text is on the cast recording, but you listen to it front to back and you hear the entire story and not just the songs. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And, you know, at that point... I really had no idea that I wanted to do theater or music. The first thing I remember I wanted to do was tell stories. And I remember thinking, well, that's a really interesting way to tell stories. What is the last great musical you saw? It has to be Come From Away. Hmm. I saw Come From Away the second week of previews. I didn't know anything about it, aside from maybe a little thumbnail sketch about, you know, it's about this town in Canada. It involves 9-11 somehow. The experience of seeing that show in that theater, I mean, talk about having an audience in the palm of your hand. There was this collective sense of, like, we are all witnessing something really special. 
I actually I saw the show with uh, Christy Bauer, who's been a guest on here before, and she had a comment afterwards. She said, "The this show just it feels like a train. It's just mm. relentless in the best possible way. I mean, everything is so well integrated. The book." the score, the direction, the actors' performances. I remember getting to the end of the show, and you know, for those who know it, the very end there's a reprise of the title number, Welcome to the Rock, and it gets to the ending, and there's this sort of, you get the sense in the room that like, oh, we know it's about to end, we know it's about to end, and they get to the last, the very last chorus, Welcome to the, Welcome to the, Welcome to the Rock, boom, blackout, for half a second, you could hear a pin drop, like this collective inhalation, and then just the most incredible sound I've ever heard come out of an audience. Just absolutely phenomenal. And totally of its time, it feels, you know, I mean, it's about a contemporary subject, but it sounds like today. It doesn't sound like it's trying to evoke some previous era of Broadway or do this, that, or the other. It's really a, a, unique, a unique animal. What's a musical people might be surprised to find out you love, and why would they be surprised? I think Annie is great. <laughs> I think it's a great musical. I mean, and I, I am it, right there with you. And I think it gets it gets a bad rap. It gets unfairly put down. I think there are a lot of people who say, "Oh, Annie. Oh, I hate Annie." People get tied up in this idea of like, "Oh, it's the it's this obnoxious kid show." If blah blah blah, but you know, like that's a great score. Yeah, that's a great. I mean, it's. It's been pointed out as it's the last, not that it's the last Golden Age show, but I, I've heard it referred to before as being the last show that had a kind of classic Golden Age type of a score where it wasn't doing that style as pastiche. It mm -hmm. was just living in that world. Yeah, and that was the late 70s. It was a seven, 77, seven? I think? Yeah, I think so. And I think there also might have been a sense at that point of like, oh, we're over this. Right, because they had already had like Sondheim. And, oh, yeah. Uh, Sondheim was doing his thing. Hair. We're getting into the rock musicals. Yeah. And this, you know, oh, this like charming, sweet, golden age type of show with a nine-year-old girl as the lead. No, thank you. Yeah, but. well, I think also as we um, see more and more today that uh, uh, lots of critics and like highfalutin theater people don't really like shows that are aimed towards young women and girls. That's true. Um, and Absolutely. like to say so in their reviews and descriptions of shows like Wicked and... Uh, mm -hmm. To me, that's kind of like part of it. That that sense that I get that it's like a silly show or like yeah. not a not a great show. A young female it. protagonist, which must mean, oh, of course, this is just going to be this is for, silly nonsense yeah, for, this little, is for girls. little girls. Uh, to quote a song title from yeah. the show, but <laughs> yes. um, no, I love Annie. And if you like really like look at Annie, you see, and we talked a lot about Annie actually on our season one finale because we looked at the song uh, A New Deal, New for, Deal Christmas. for Christmas yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah if you look at Annie it's really it's like really smartly like oh yeah what? like looking at the history of like FDR and the New Deal and that optimism and yeah, and, yeah. You know, one, and one of my favorite things about that show that I will point out at any opportunity I get just structurally is how how great and what a bold move to make maybe the opening number. Oh yeah, and you know they had a different one. If you listen on one of the cast actually, recordings, I'm learning something. 
Yeah, on one of the cast recordings, one of the like reissued cast recordings, they have, um, I guess, Charles Strauss, the composer, and one of the other writers was there too, I guess, um, playing, like doing like a, some kind of backers audition or something. Like it's them just like performing the songs at the piano and like describing the action. And they've got this opening number that's very much like the kind of what Hooverville became. Um, Like this is like we're going around. This is the apple cellar and here's the apple cellar and like all the people who are on the streets and stuff like that. And the lights come up on four apple cellars standing with their apple carts singing to the passers-by on the street. I used to buy my cufflinks at Cartier. I owned a marble mansion at Oyster Bay. I farmed a thousand acres near Darien. Apples, apples, two for ten. I was the brightest broker at Merrill Lynch. I'd make a drop of... And I can totally understand why they would first think of that as an opening number because oh, yeah. like an adult perspective coming into the show is like the time period the the you know context of this and which we get yeah which as an adult seeing Annie I love I love Hooverville I love the uh, cabinet scene you know and all that those references but yeah as you say like it's this is a show that is really kids first and yeah Yeah. well and and the thing there is you know the the logical opening number is Hard Knock Life. Mm-hmm. You know, again, oh, yeah. establishing the world, establishing the given circumstances. Here's our big ensemble. Here's what our life is like. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. It, on a purely logical level, it would make so much sense to have that be the opening and then, mm-hmm. you know, focus into maybe. Yeah. And having it the other way around, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I love it. I think yeah. it's a great choice and maybe again why in 1977 this was sort of oh passe was i mean here is a character you know little orphan annie she's an orphan she's living in terrible conditions with this terrible miss hannigan yeah her parents are we find out they're dead she doesn't know she doesn't know where they are are they dead did they leave me here's a character who yeah spoiler alert (laughs) in case you don't know annie here is a character who has every reason in the world to just feel horrible and be like life is awful this is terrible and she still has this song of no i think it's all still gonna be okay yeah maybe maybe it's okay so let's move on to our topic which is orchestration and creating the sound world of a musical um so uh why don't you kind of uh i guess start with the kind of an overview of what uh this topic is and like what it why you wanted to talk about it yeah well i uh i grew up as a, a band and orchestra kid mm-hmm. before i even really got into the theater my first experiences with music were um was playing in the the middle school band the high school band you know joining the the jazz band and the pep band and doing my own arrangements and things so that that kind of a sound world was always in my head. So yeah. I was always really interested in listening to that in musicals and what kind of a, what kind of a picture it was painting, what kind of a world it was painting. And mm-hmm. we think of uh, you know, a lot of these golden age shows and 
really kind of starting with the golden age here yeah and what that world sounds like and it's this very you know it's certainly what we would think of today as a big orchestra i mean the right. standard was about 30 30 players sometimes even more but a full complement strings brass winds percussion really kind of uh stemming from a the 19th century romantic era uh, European symphony orchestra, sort of right. a reduced version of that. Um, but you know, this big, this big sound. And so the sense that we got from a lot of those shows is big stories. Right. Even when the focus was on, you know, sort of everyday, everyday people. Mm-hmm. Um, we had talked a little before about Julie and Billy from Carousel. I mean, yeah. they are like, you know what it says in the show they're nobody they're working class people there's nothing particularly special about them but when we hear those songs with those big orchestrations there's this sense that they are tied into something mm-hmm. bigger you know right. the nature and heaven and time and all of this big stuff yeah and we get to more contemporary shows uh and in general, the orchestra is quite a bit smaller. And there's a lot of varying reasons for this. Uh, economic reasons. Shows have to run longer to recoup. Mm-hmm. Uh, shows are a lot more expensive to put up in general. And popular tastes have simply changed. You know, you listen to popular music records of the 40s and 50s. A lot of those singers, I mean, not necessarily recording for Broadway albums, but they were singing with orchestras and big bands. And really, you know, with the advent in the 60s of the uh, singer-songwriters and rock bands, what people got used to listening to on the radio was this much more stripped-down, you know, guitar, bass, piano, drums, or sometimes even less than that, kind of rhythm-section-driven music. So... In terms of why did the orchestra get smaller, uh, yeah, various factors, but the two biggest are uh, economic reasons and just shifting taste. Um, but what's interesting in a lot of uh, contemporary shows is how they use, how they can utilize smaller orchestras mm-hmm. to paint really different kinds of worlds. I mean, one of my favorite examples to use recently is the band's visit. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, a lot of times with newer shows and and with uh, revivals of older shows that have reduced pits, um, pit sizes, there's a sort of lamenting of like, oh, don't you remember how it was back in the day when you had this big, glorious orchestra and now we can only have five or six or whatever. And, yeah. you know, certainly it would be nice as a composer to, you know, if your piece is meant to have an orchestra of 32, I would love to, your piece to have that orchestra of 32. Right. But that's not necessarily the case for every show. You know, with the band's visit, you have, um, I think there are eight credited orchestra members uh, in that show. I think four of them are in the onstage band, four of them are in the pit. Mm-hmm. And there's a few extra um, actors playing character roles who will play, uh, you know, the violin or the trumpet or various other right. things. But it's... You know, through a lot of the show, eight musicians who create this completely unique sound world with these Arabic instruments, these Middle Eastern instruments, where we have this Broadway show that's basically saying, you know, we're not going to try to do a reduced version of this Golden Age sound. We are creating our completely unique musical world. Yeah. Uh, 
over here. So, you know, I, I kind of want to emphasize that bigger orchestra, smaller orchestra, older show, newer show, not looking at it really in terms of like bigger is better, smaller is worse, but just what can you do with each? Yeah. Because sometimes I think having that big orchestra can actually hamper you a little bit with some of that golden age, um, golden age material. Uh, there could be a, sometimes a little bit of a problem with a one size fits all. Like mm-hmm. we're just going to use this whole big orchestra for right. every show and shows kind of sounding like other shows. And, yeah. you know, one of the advantages you can actually have with a smaller orchestra is really kind of tailoring it to what are the exact needs of this show. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like I'm thinking now of when uh, I saw the revival of Sweeney Todd where they uh, play the instruments hmm. on the stage, obviously a complete completely different orchestration from the original production in 79 that had, you know, a big, not as big as Golden Age, but like a much bigger orchestra than we have today, or than, you know, obviously bigger than the people playing the instruments on the stage. And just, it's still, it was a completely different sound, a completely different style of the show, but still the, but still the songs, like still that yeah, show. Yeah, You know, and, and I think that, um, there's something about using that sort of a, a smaller instrumentation like that or a smaller orchestration that really kind of puts it on a very human scale. Mm-hmm. I mentioned mentioning before, you know, Carousel, how it yeah. all just feels big and grand and lush. Right. And then a show like that, um, you know, like the revival of Sweeney Todd or again, Bands Visit, where it's all... You know, there isn't this sort of cosmic greater... Right. I mean, you know, there there is an elevation about it, but the focus is really on, like, these are just... These are people. Yeah. And we are just getting a glimpse into their... Yeah. Well, it's interesting, because, like... The imaginations of their life. In Sweeney Todd, in the original, it did have that big feeling. Yeah. Like, it did... Uh, you did feel like... And the part of that was, like, how Prince's concept, like, of the Industrial Revolution, and this is part of this larger thing that's going on... And then you see the Grand Guignol version with this very small orchestration, and that just works for what they wanted that style to be—that that focus on like a small space. This is happening in like a very small, um, could be like an insane asylum, you know. Which I think that was part of the uh, style of that as well. But um, yeah, it's just interesting to think about like what the orchestrations are, how they're working with the style of storytelling as you yeah. as you mentioned and environment i mean you mm-hmm. mentioned like feeling like you're in an insane asylum um yeah you know and a lot of i mean there's a lot of immersive shows these days in various ways but like how do you use not just you know the orchestra in the pit i mean you yeah. know golden age show you're gonna have your big 30-piece orchestra in the pit sometimes right. now they're on stage they can be in the boxes they can be all around you you know in a bro- off broadway or off off broadway setting mm-hmm. um about um using sound in three dimensions and where is it coming from and right. how immediate is it and i think again that's another really cool element that you can play with as a as an orchestrator as a composer as a sound designer right right uh, and a lot of people have done a lot of really interesting things with that these days you had wanted to talk about i guess vocal range and timber yes in uh golden age shows versus contemporary shows specifically well something i i hear a lot these days and i think a lot of us hear a lot these days as a sort of a, a 
complaint a little bit is uh, people point out that there's this overwhelming tendency in a lot of contemporary shows for uh, overwhelming preference for high tenors and belty mezzos Mm -hmm. of sort of everybody singing in this same kind of middle sea to the sea above range um, in the same big belty way and they say you know oh I wish composers were writing for sopranos and baritones and well some of us are but (laughs) actually a big part of that um, aside from just a stylistic preference has to do with orchestrations because you think of again sort of a rock music um, setup where you're really starting with that rhythm section guitar keyboards bass drums what's gonna cut over that ensemble it's that high tenor belty mezzo range C mm. to the C above so not just musical theater but you listen to a lot of you know pop and rock music from really the early 70s until today a lot of it an overwhelming lot of it is sung in that register mm. um, so there is a lot there is a preference for that due to that kind of rock music style but um, you know I think we're seeing more and more now shows that'll break out of that a little bit I have a question though, just like the soprano voice. Yes. Like, I mean, obviously that's not like a rock band style voice, but like, wouldn't that also... Some people don't know Nightwish, but... Well, (laughs) it can be, yes. It can be. But wouldn't that also cut like the way a tenor's voice does? I think range-wise it would certainly cut, but it has to do also with the um, intensity, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Again, the sort of that bigger belty mezzo sound is going to cut more than your sort of lush mm. high soprano, uh, unless they're going up to very, very high, kind of on top of the staff and above the staff, at which point you start yeah. losing text a little bit. Yeah. So for musical theater in particular, if you want volume, if you want it to cut and you want the text, yeah. and you're using a kind of rock band rhythm section type of setup, there's a lot of preference for that range, for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, the pop soprano, I think, is very a very hard voice type to find nowadays. Yeah, and they're, they're out there, but yeah. you gotta, you got to do your looking. Yeah, there, I mean, there are speci- like, uh, specific uh, roles, I guess, that use them, like um, Anastasia or something. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's certainly a good example. And... And also, Anastasia is a show not using a, a sort of a rock band setup. Right. Olive in Spelling mm-hmm. Bee. You know, it's a contemporary show right. with a uh, leading soprano role that it sings soprano. Pop soprano, not operatic, but, right. you know, that re- that's a role for a soprano. And that's a show that uses a small, say, five or six pieces, um, mm-hmm. but doesn't quite rely on that heavy you know, beating you over the head with a rock band sound. It really yeah. is kind of used as like a little chamber group almost. Right, right. Well, let's talk about um, uh, one example we have is uh, I Could Have Danced All Night from My Fair Lady um, and how the as an example of a golden age show and song, how the orchestrations are working in, in that song. Yeah, well, I chose this one to be sort of an example of like, a showpiece for our leading lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, oh, I just saw it recently. What, maybe not quite halfway through act one, but mm-hmm. we're, we're a little ways in. So this yeah. isn't right at the top. It's not our I want song, but it's the moment where she really gets to step out and show off vocally. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually, I love this orchestration because 
even with this big orchestra, 30 pieces, it's never overpowering. Yeah. He has, Robert Russell Bennett did the uh, original orchestrations. He has this big force at his disposal and uses it very tastefully and deftly and sparingly mm -hmm. in order to showcase uh, Eliza, in this case, Julie Andrews, who has right. you know, this beautiful, crystal clear soprano voice, but not a particularly a big voice. It's not this big, booming, you know, blow the roof off the Met Opera House soprano. It's this really lovely lyrical voice. And what I love about this orchestration is the way that it feels like she's gliding on top of it. Well, in the A section, she starts into it. I could have danced all night. I could have danced all night. So we have the double bass playing this pizzicato. Boom, 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 mm -hmm. boom, boom. That's our motor device, but it's very, again, very soft, very light not pounding drums, just this little pizzicato strings. The upper strings and the cello double the vocal line in octaves. So we have this sort of skating, again, gliding motion. The woodwinds provide these little counterpoint flourishes. I could have danced, boo doo 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 doo. Right. I could have danced, boo doo 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 doo. Boo doo 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 doo. The harp provides these little occasional flourishes. We have all of the, uh, all of the sections minus the brass. Um, I'm a brass player, but hey, it's all good. Um, <laughs> we have all these sections joining in to create this really wonderful, it's almost like a, like a machine. Yeah. You, just you feel all of the cogs turning, everybody just sort of playing their part, and it's all in service of the singer and the text. Mm. And again, it just feels like she's gliding, she's skating on top of it. I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night, and still have been And he doesn't really bring out the big guns until actually the very end, when she goes up to the high G. I could have danced, danced, danced all night. I don't know if that's a G. <laughs> and then the brass comes in, and there's our fanfare and our timpani roll and big mm -hmm. ending. I just think it's it's a great piece of orchestration and again because he has all of these forces at his disposal and uses them very smartly yeah yeah it's a uh, it's something I think you don't really think about as you're listening to it without yeah, that yeah it, it just feels you know it's so intricate and so well done and it feels effortless mm -hmm. and yeah you don't think about it while it's happening you're just sort of washed washed away in it yeah um, and now, how does that compare with, uh, you know, a contemporary orchestration, for example, something from the last, you know, 20 years or so? Yeah. Well, I pointed out uh, The Wizard and I from Wicked, mm -hmm. which is, once again, a showpiece for our leading lady. Right. Um, now, this is the second song in the show, I believe, um, the big I want, I am number, and where I talked about... Eliza is gliding, Elphaba's driving. Mm -hmm. Like, you just get the sense, like, she is in charge, she is there in front of it. Uh, and it's funny because there actually are some interesting similarities into the way that these orchestrations uh, begin. I pointed out that they both, um, 
they both begin with strings, woodwind, and harp. Mm-hmm. But then once it gets going, you know, you have that guitar ostinato come right. in. You have those drums, you have that bass. It's sort of building bigger and bigger in a bigger kind of a way, where again, it really feels like she's driving the bus. And instead of the last note being where the big guns are out, Mm -hmm. it's the entire last A Mm -hmm. uh, where she just goes, you know, belt to the roof. um, And this whole orchestra is backing her up in this way where, again, it feels like she's just, she's at the head of that ship. She's driving that train. Whatever vehicle metaphor you want to use here. It's a different way that she's using her voice. The ranges of the songs are actually pretty similar. Mm -hmm. They both end on C major, but the way that, you know, Elphaba and Idina Menzel on that original recording uses her voice to create this just huge wall of sound and the way that that orchestra you know just comes up right there with her yeah um you know it's it's intense and it's thrilling and i think it it says something about the way that shows today will use that kind of a moment yeah a celebration throughout ours that's all to do Amplification play in all this. Does now that we have microphones um, basically right next to the mouth, <laughs> yeah, in the head or in the wig, yeah. Well, part of this is I think it changes the way that um, you know for singers certainly it changes the ways that they produce sound or the ways that they can produce sound. Mm-hmm. You know, a show you might have been doing in the 40s and 50s in the golden age where you wouldn't have had your headset mic. You've got to cut over that orchestra. Right. You're going to produce sound in a different way. Whereas, you know, with the microphone, you know, with a headset mic that you can use all around the stage, I think there are a lot more idioms of, you know, rock music singing, pop music singing, making their way into... Um, yeah into musical theater. Well, uh, you can't uh, you can't really sing without a microphone over an electric guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, and there is a sense of, again, thinking of Elphaba with the orchestra from Wicked of, mm-hmm. like, you know, they're going to be big and loud. They've got amplified instruments, electric guitar. She's right. got to be big and loud right there with them. We also wanted to talk about uh, piano accompaniment um, in both Golden Age and today. Yeah, well, I think that's just, that's one thing that you can look at and kind of see in a different kind of way how orchestrations have changed. Because you look at, you know, the piano vocal score for a Golden Age show. Mm -hmm. If you were to play it, you know, get the, get a piano vocal book of, you know, Golden Age songs are from the show and play Mm -hmm. through it. A lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein. A lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein (laughs) and things of that era. A lot of it is going to be pretty simple. You're going to have, you know... Bass note in the bass note in the left hand, chords in the right hand, mm-hmm. the melody in there, maybe a thumb line, but it's pretty stripped down. There is this understanding with a score like that that um, you know that you're not getting everything here necessarily. Right. You're getting what you need to to sing through the song, to perform the song in a recital setting, but you know, in an actual production of the show, you're going to have again these bigger forces, strings and winds and brass, and it's not necessarily 
the thing that it's meant to be right there in that piano right. vocal book. Uh, with today, with a lot of things, um, you know, partly due to the reduced orchestra size and partly due to where I think especially a lot of young writers are, there's this sense that even in a full production, you might not be hearing a whole lot more than that piano. Maybe mm-hmm. percussion, maybe one or two other instruments, but, you know, you look at not every contemporary show, but a lot of them, the piano's doing a lot more, a right. lot more work, rhythmically, um, with riffs and runs and various things, because there's this sense of, you know, you very well might be seeing a production of this show that only has piano, or maybe piano and one other instrument, and you really got to use that piano for all its, all its worth. And right. so there's a lot... Not to say that there weren't, you know, virtuosic scores of the Golden Age and other uh, eras. I mean, ask any pianist about playing a Frederick Lowe score. I mean, he was a concert pianist. There's some mm-hmm. beefy stuff in that. But, um, you know, a lot of, uh, in a lot of scores today, you get the, a sense of uh, a lot of busyness in the piano score, which yeah. is, I, I'm not using to say as a negative, but there's right. a sense of you need to get a fuller sound out of that out of your piano vocal score because a lot of times that might be all you have. Right, and um, we're thinking of, say, like Jason Robert Brown's oh, yeah. work uh, for sure um, in like Songs for New World and uh, other similar stuff from his, uh, I guess, a lot of his earlier shows for sure. Um, and then what about, say, like, uh, a show like Hair, which is, uh, and, and rock musicals in general, where a show like Hair was kind of coming out of the kind of bigger orchestras and yet also uh, using rock music. Yeah, well, I, I think that's an interesting example because, you know, there's a lot of debate about is Hair the first rock musical? Was it the first rock musical? Some people will say yes, some people will say no. Mm-hmm. And really what I would look at at it as, uh, at least in terms of, you know, the music and the orchestration is, I think it's really the first show where that rhythm section was the driving force, Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, the orchestra or the piano. I mean, you know, think about going into a standard, you know, musical theater rehearsal room. What are you going to have? You're going to have your floor-length mirrors and a piano. Mm -hmm. And that was really... You know, somebody else can correct me uh, in in the comment section of wherever this is <laughs> if I'm wrong about this. But I believe that was the first show, really, that we heard on Broadway where the driving force was that you know the guitar, the bass, the electric keyboards, the drums, that rhythm section. There were horns and there were other things. I mean, a pretty big, full-sounding band for that show. You know, Galt McDermott was a you know uh, jazz and funk. Uh, player who really liked to have a big sound in his scores and mm-hmm. use a lot of instrumentalists, but he was using them in a very different kind of a way. And in some ways, I think that might have been for your crowd that was coming, just coming out of the golden age, really. Yeah. Um, maybe not even quite aware that it was quite over yet. Um, sort of a stepping stone into like, all right, maybe we're not going to go 100% into just a rock band yet. We're still going to have your horns and strings and some things in here, but like, but that's going to be the driving force of this show. Yeah. As opposed to like, 
Bye Bye Birdie, which uses yeah, rock and roll elements. And it's really, elements. Bye, yeah, Bye Bye Birdie is in a lot of ways, I mean, it's a classic golden age kind of a show, but it, it incorporates a rock band sound for some of it and for the character of Conrad Birdie to have that right. classic kind of Elvis Presley sound. But I, you know, it's one people kind of debate about, is it a rock musical, is it not? I would say it's not. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a later golden age musical that incorporates elements of rock, but I would mm-hmm. not call it a rock musical. Compare that to, I guess, the the rock musicals of today um, in terms of orchestration. What are the ones today doing differently? Well, I think rock musicals today are more willing to embrace that really kind of stripped down sound. I think mm-hmm. part of that might be it's just what we're used to hearing nowadays in right. pop music and on the radio, what we grew up with. I mean, mm-hmm. even people like in the musical theater scene grew up hearing this kind of music Um, so it doesn't maybe strike us as quite as weird or shocking of hearing a show you know on broadway that really just sounds like a rock Mm -hmm. show i mean i think of a show you know think of something like hair or jesus christ superstar which had that you know driving rock band as the the rock band as the driving force of the show but still had full orchestrations and all of this stuff as opposed to say hedwig and the angry inch which Mm -hmm. is really you know you get the sense that, I mean, in the Broadway production, that a rock band has taken over this space. And right. we're not really hearing, like, a Broadway show with an orchestra, but with rock. I mean, we're, like, we're meant to feel like we're at a rock show. Right. Or, like... Uh, what's the what's the instrumentation of Hedwig? It's just... I believe... Guitar, bass, drums. I believe it's... Uh, yeah, I think piano? it's just... I, I don't think there's a piano in Hedwig. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, yeah, guitar, bass... Oh, no, bass, there is a piano on... Uh, oh. On a wig in a box. Oh, you're right. All right. There is a keyboardist. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not 100% <laughs> on it there. But it's, you know, it's a rock band. We're meant yeah. to feel like we're at a rock show. Or um, Passing Strange by mm-hmm. Stu. I mean, it's meant to feel like we're in a we're in a rock club watching watching this show, watching this guy tell a story. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting thing to think about. You know, kind of what this is all getting back to is... How are we telling stories? Yeah. And there is, you know, we, I think for so many years became used to this kind of golden age idea, this golden age sound of like, that's how we tell stories. Mm -hmm. And this is what a Broadway musical sounds like. This is what a real Broadway musical sounds like. Right. And one of the cool things that I like today is that we are kind of getting away from, you know, there there is still kind of a, a... pining for that golden age sound and understandably it sounds great and you know the there's still a generation that did grow up with that and saw those shows but i think we're just we're exploring a lot of new interesting ways of how do we tell these stories through music and what instruments and sounds and worlds are we creating to uh to tell these stories and i think younger audiences today are open to really open to just about anything well great well let's move on to our uh why is this so good section uh we're going to talk about the song dust and ashes from great comet uh or natasha pierre and the great comet of 1812 uh to use the full title um so this song you were saying is only in the broadway version of the show there were versions of it off-broadway intense yeah i actually i i didn't see it uh off-broadway in the tent i didn't see it until it went to broadway so i don't exactly know what happened Mm. 
at this moment in the show. But this was um, specifically the song that Dave Malloy wrote for Josh Groban to go into the Broadway mm -hmm. production. Yeah, because I uh, didn't see it on Broadway. I only saw it off Broadway. So this song is new to me and definitely not on the, on the off-Broadway recording. No. Um, so yeah, why did you pick this song for uh, Why Is This So Good? Well, in keeping with the orchestration theme, I thought this was a great example to use of, well, for a few things. One, um, how do you get a big, lush, grandiose sound out of a smaller contemporary orchestration? Mm -hmm. um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. Great Comet, I want to say it's about 10 players, maybe? And they have their... Uh, you know, they have actors playing instruments too, which adds to that big sound, but it's a fairly small, kind of a chamber ensemble. There's, um, you know, piano and bass and drums, uh, strings, woodwinds, but it's not a full orchestra. Uh, but I think this song does a really brilliant, it's a really brilliant example of how many things can you vary mm -hmm. in a song and still have it make sense and be all of one piece? You know, what can you vary? You can vary tempo, rhythm, time signature, density, register, dynamic, tone color. And what I love about this song is it just, it goes all over the place and yet it mm -hmm. feels like a very definitive whole. Yeah, I was going to say, like, listening to it, my my main thought was like, whoa, what, what is the structure here? Like, yeah. <laughs> what's happening? Why the, the chorus the, is down here. Yeah, We've got a bunch of, you know, you've got this sort of, you know, in the, in the Broadway cast recording, there's 23 seconds before the vocal enters, mm -hmm. which doesn't sound like that much, but in the context, it, right. it's a long time. And we're kind of waiting for this entrance, waiting for this entrance. And then, yes, yeah, so we have, you know, structurally, I have it here, verse one, verse two, chorus, bridge, verse three, second chorus, mm. a fragment of a chorus, and then a coda. Yeah. And what's really fascinating is that every single one of these, every verse, every chorus, every different bit, he is using different forces, utilizing different forces in entirely different ways. Mm. Um, there's no sort of like copy paste, like, oh, we're going to do this again. Um, every, you know, just looking at the verses, the first verse really just mostly uh, piano, just piano and vocal. Is this how I die? Ridiculed and laughed at, wearing clown shoes. Is this how I... In this big space, we get a little bit of strings. Uh, you know, we have this solo cello enter, followed by the higher strings. In the second verse, you know, the woodwinds come in. There's this great bass clarinet line in there. Um, so we get, you know, the swelling of the forces and a much more definitive time signature. Every wasted minute, every time I turn. From the things that might have been. Um, 
I'll skip forward a bit. The third verse is this like rollicking New Orleans like hot house with these pounding drums in six eight times with this wild clarinet solo. Where is this how I died? Was there ever any way my life could be? Is this how I died? Such a storm of feeling. It actually didn't occur to me the first couple of times that I heard the song. That's the third verse. Yeah. Because it sounds nothing like these verses, but you listen again, lyrically, structurally, the melodic line, that's the third verse, and it's just, it's on another planet. Yeah. And it's, but yeah, it's still the, I keep, I, when I'm listening to it, I keep looking for the, is this how I die? Like, that's what, and yeah, like, yeah. that almost feels like the hook of the song in a way, because it's the thing that keeps coming back and grounding me more than Dust and Ashes, which is the title of the song. Um, which comes in the chorus, which is beautifully set. I mean, it's oh, that's a gorgeous chorus. And a really interesting thing about that, um, which kind of ties into what you said, is that you know we think of verse-chorus songs of like the verse is sort of a planting of an idea, and then the mm -hmm. chorus, the idea kind of explodes. Yeah, it's we're, the, we're the waiting part for you this remember. big thing. Yeah. And what's interesting about this is that the sort of the big the meat of it really is in the verses and the choruses mm -hmm. are kind of this quiet meditation. Yeah. The first chorus, you know, the piano drops out. We just have strings and winds. Pierre, uh, in the show, Pierre is at the piano playing mm -hmm. the first and second verse. And then he steps away, sings this chorus just with strings and woodwinds. Mm -hmm. And then after this crazy third verse with the, you know, New Orleans jazz clarinet solo, yeah. we get the second chorus, which is entirely a cappella voices. And, you know, for anybody who saw it on Broadway, again, thinking about sound in three dimensions, the way that was staged with the, the choir, the cast all around you, you're not expecting that moment after this big rollicking uh, verse. And then for that to just come out, I mean, again, that, that's one of the amazing things about this song is, again, just how many things can he vary? And yeah. every time you think like, oh, that's, you know, all right, he's really like, you know, gone off here. Like, that's the big thing he's going to throw at us. He's like, no, nah, I got something else for you. Yeah. I no, mean, I'm going to throw this at you. Definitely you know, wasn't been expecting the no, choir. No other voices <laughs> anywhere in the song. And then I have here, it's um, four minutes and 31 seconds in. All mm. of a sudden, choir. They say we are asleep until we fall in love. We are children of dust and ashes. But when we fall in love, we wake up and we are a god and angels we. But if I die here tonight, I die in my sleep. And not just choir, only choir. Mm, I mean, yeah. ooh, that's an amazing moment. Yeah. Yeah, and just lyrically, it's, I mean, it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful text. Um, and the rhymes are, there's a lot of rhyme, but it's, it feels in keeping with like the poetic nature of it. Um, and just in the chorus, the weep and sleep uh, and we are, and we are a God and angels weep, but if I die here, I die in my sleep. Just like that, 
the simple rhyme, but it's just like beautiful. And works, it's, it's set so well. I mean, yeah. set so well with this music of, you know, it's not trying to be overly, I mean, you know, it's an amazing showpiece for the actor playing Pierre, but it's mm -hmm. not trying overly hard to be, you know, clever and go sort of over the top with, mm -hmm. you know, things of, that we tend to think of being in sort of your impressive showpiece, especially these days, you know, big belty high notes and riffs and runs and lots of clever this, that, and the other. It's just, yeah. you know, real and raw and yeah. it's great. And I will point out, this is a song for our leading man written for a baritone. <laughs> it's written for a baritone to sing and it's awesome. So I love this song and I think it's just so wonderfully done and such a wonderful example of great orchestration and how mm. to use a contemporary setup that you might have for a smaller orchestra to just get this really incredible palette of sounds. Cool. Well, let's move on to our final section called, called Something Wonderful. Just got my ticket. Looking very much forward to it. Hades Town. Oh yeah, I, I saw that off Broadway. Yeah, uh, I, I did not, but I, I didn't see it off Broadway, but I heard about it and I just went to a preview event for it a few weeks ago and just based on the little bit that I heard, it looks really cool. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. Please write to us at scenetosong at gmail.com at any time with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast. Follow Scene to Song on Twitter at scenesong, as well as on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. And be sure to rate us on iTunes, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.